Um, let's turn to Matthew 16, and we'll also go to the back of our hymnals. Matthew 16, and then we'll look at the back of our hymnals to page 937 and 938. We're uh, starting a new chapter, chapter 30 of Church Centures, but first let's read the Word of the Lord, and then I'm only going to read section 1, and then we'll look at section 2 later during the message. Um, John, I'm sorry, Matthew 16, starting at verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, and others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall, be, um, shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Then he warned the disciples that they should not uh, tell, they should, they should tell no one that he was the Christ. And then we'll look next at Matthew 18. Starting in verse 15. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church... Let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Again I say to you that if two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. And we read section 1 of chapter 30. The Lord Jesus, as king and head of his church, hath therein appointed a government in the hand of church officers distinct from the civil magistrate. Let's pray together. Our blessed Lord, we ask that you would help us to understand this, your holy word, to rightly um, allow scripture to interpret scripture, that we could understand a, a true biblical doctrine of your church and of the authority given to the officers of the church. Help us to exalt Jesus Christ, the only head of your church, for we ask it in his name. Amen. 
As we look at section uh, one and two of this new chapter, we'll notice that um, this is concerning the authority given to church officers. Um, I think this is a, an excellent passage, uh, an excellent study for us to understand how not to interpret Scripture. We don't look at one passage of Scripture and define our doctrine based on one. We let Scripture interpret Scripture. And we'll look at a little bit more of this uh, soon as we turn and we look more at these passages of Scripture that we just read. But it's a classic example, as we'll see, that um, you have to be careful. The proper means of determining things in Scripture that are less clear is not to come up with tradition, but it's to come up with uh, an understanding of letting Scripture define what other Scripture is to be, uh, how it is to be used in reference to the church. And here we find a case here for church government. Now the fact, as it says here in section 1, that the Lord Jesus Christ, as king and head of the church, has appointed a government um, in the hand of church officers is something that is, was foretold by the prophet Isaiah. There's two passages here we want to look at. In Isaiah 7, 14, The Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be, will be with child and bear a son, and she shall call his name Emmanuel, which is God with us. In Isaiah 9, 6, this gives more specific uh, prophecy about the importance of this holy virgin-born child. It says, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest upon his shoulders. And when Jesus comes upon the scene, he establishes a church. And we find here two main passages in Matthew 16 and Matthew 18. Uh, I, I want you to keep your place in Matthew um, 16 and Matthew 18, but we would need to turn to Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4, which tells us um, when Paul gives us instruction about how Jesus appointed a government for the maturity, the stability, and the blessing of his church. We'll look at starting at verse 7. But, this is Ephesians 4, 7, but to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also had descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens, so that he might fill all things. And he gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith, and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, and to the measure of the stature stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there 
by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming, but speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part causes the growth of the body for the building up itself in love. Christ as head of the church equips the church and he gives gifts to men, not so that they could boast in their gifts, but he gives gifts to men for the benefit, for the maturity, for the growth of the church, so that the church would be stable, wouldn't be tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine, but there would be a stability, but that he would hold it all together and each joint would supply one another and he would give strength to the body. And again here, it's his appointing a government for that purpose in church officers. Now getting back to section 1, notice here it says that Christ as head and king appoints a government for the church, but it's to be distinct from the civil government. Why is that here? Um, let's consider this. You have a man or a woman who is sworn in as a position of authority, uh, as a city mayor, a state governor, or even the, na the nation's uh, president, a national president. Him having that office does not give him any authority. Him or her having such an office does not give them any authority whatsoever in the church. But the opposite is true, or in a similar fashion, you could say, uh, you have someone ordained as an elder, a, someone ordained as a deacon or a gospel minister, and just because you're ordained as one of those officers in the church, it doesn't mean you have authority in the, in the civil realm of the local government, state government, or federal government. Now, there can be cases, and this, this section here does not forbid somebody from holding both offices. Well, you, you could have a mayor of a town who's also a pastor or a ruling elder. That can happen. But the, the roles don't overlap. Uh, section 1, I believe, was born out of a time uh, in which um, there was uh, the means of civil magistrates using their authority to persecute the church. Um, if, I don't know if you're aware of this, but I know there was a lot of persecution before the um, writing of the Westminster Standards, but even after the Westminster Standards were finished in 1647, there still was persecution in England because, um, in, especially in, I think it was uh, 1660, there was the beginning of opposition that made it almost impossible to be a Presbyterian in England for a time. Independents and Presbyterians were persecuted to the point where um, it really only allowed the episcopy to be established, the Episcopal Church. Now, these standards were written so that this wouldn't happen. It was to prevent this from happening. But of course, uh, the, the government of England didn't care to follow the Westminster standards. Now, if you wonder whether or not persecution of some sort like this could happen in the United States, or you say, well, I don't think it could happen in the United States, I think you're sorely mistaken. Canada has 
passed legislation that prevents hate speech, which restricts what ministers can say or publish from the Holy Word of God. Um, in particular, to say anything negative or calling homosexuality sin, or especially as Romans 1, 27 and following has it, that it, it is uh, a practice of being homosexual is being given over by God to a depraved mind, that would be considered hate speech. And you could be fined, or you could even be imprisoned for, for saying that, especially in the public realm. Um, such legislation could be passed in the United States if Christians don't care to vote. I know of some family um, who just didn't care to even go out and vote, even Christian family who didn't care to go out and vote at all. It wasn't important to them. Um, or you have the case of Christians not caring to vote according to a Christian worldview. They vote according to the tradition of their families rather than according to what the Bible would dictate. Now, before I read section 2, I want you to notice that I did supply the word church here um, in the reading. Section 2 says, To these church officers, the keys of the kingdom of heaven are committed. By virtue thereof, they have power, respect, uh, respectively, to retain and remit sins, to shut that kingdom against the impenitent, both by the word and censures. All right, so this is a language here that I think flows into the next reason why I selected these two passages from Matthew 16 and Matthew 18. Living in Louisiana, the notion of the keys of the kingdom being given to the church is interpreted very often, by, well, not very often, it is interpreted clearly by the Roman Catholic Church as the keys of the kingdom belonging to the papacy. Um, they would say it was of the lineage of Peter alone. That's why they, they believe that there's an unbroken line descending from Peter. Therefore, Peter was the first pope, which the Bible doesn't say, and there's no office of pope anywhere to be found in Holy Scripture either. But that's the argument they give, that here we have in, in Matthew 16 that the keys of the kingdom are being given to Peter. Um, by the way, you want a, another interpretation of verse 17 is this. When Jesus says, Blessed are you, Simon, Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven... I say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock, now everyone interprets that this rock refers to Peter, but you could say some have interpreted it as the rock of the confession of Peter. This steadfast interpretation that you are the Christ when he says that confession. Well, let's even argue that there's some special place for Peter. Well, what about the following passage that we read? If someone says here that Matthew 16 gives the keys of the kingdom to Peter alone, is that what the rest of the Bible teaches? And I don't think so. I think the problem with the Catholic Church is they ignore Matthew 18. Let's look at Matthew 18 again. Matthew 18, 
Matthew 18. It says here, I might as well read the whole thing again. Verse 15. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. So here, here's how it goes. You got one-on-one efforts towards reconciliation. There's been a sin committed. Somebody commits a sin, and you go to that person one-on-one, and you talk to them. If that doesn't work, you take one or two more with you. They serve as both witnesses and peacemakers to try to help you reconcile the situation. If the, if the situation is reconciled and the person asks for forgiveness or gives back whatever they might have taken or done wrong, then the problem is resolved. It doesn't even have to be told to anybody else. But if they refuse to listen to this group of people, then you take it to the church. And if you take it to church and they refuse to listen to the church regarding this mandate for reconciliation, it says that they are to be then considered as a Gentile or a tax collector. If he refuses to listen to the church... Let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Now, notice here, you got a problem in the church. It doesn't say take it to the papacy. It doesn't say take it to Peter. It says take it to the church. And it doesn't say that one person decides, as we'll look a little bit later, it's at least more than one who have to decide Um, And I think that is the key of what we have there uh, in the following of that verse. Um, Two or three gathered together. That's one of the main reasons why we believe that we have uh, session members that can't be just one person. There has to be a multiplicity of elders to have a Presbyterian church. You can't have a leadership of one. You have to have a multiplicity of elders. So when a session or Presbytery exercises church discipline. It does so to shut that kingdom against the impenitent. It is doing so as a delegated authority coming from Christ. Now, you've, you've heard this, I know, all of your lives, um, especially this particular verse in particular. Uh, Where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. It's the most commonly used verse in the entire Bible to support a very, very small prayer meeting or a very, very, very small church meeting. But that's not the context of these verses. Verses 19 and 20 are ripped out of context when used that way. Now, I think you can use it that way, but it's used out of context. The context of of verses 19 and 20 is in reference to church discipline. So here we have it written in verse 17. 
Now, let's, let's give it in light of excommunication. The person's been excommunicated. This is how we should understand verse 17. Where two or three have gathered in my name to exercise church discipline, I am there in their midst, Christ says, in making that decision. When a section exercises church discipline according to the Word of God, in consistency with the Word of God, using that Word as authority and its biblical church discipline, it's as if that discipline is coming from Christ Himself. Christ is present, He says, and you could say He even approves when it's according to His Word. It's not just a session who gives a person over to Satan. It is Christ himself through the means or the delegation of the session that gives a person over to Satan when they do so as under-shepherds of the great shepherd. Now, church discipline. It, it's a, a lot of people in some realms of uh, the evangelical church don't like it, but it is not used for the purpose of just condemning people to hell. Church discipline is used for the recovery of the sinner. Now, uh, the classic example, again, is the man caught in incest in 1 Corinthians 5. It wasn't just given over to Satan to damn the man. Uh, Paul mentions here, and it's written in your outline, 1 Corinthians 5, verse 5, Paul said this, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Now, some sources believe that 2 Corinthians was written about a year later. So then this is what he wrote a year later in 2 Corinthians uh, 6 through 8. And it's likely concerning this same incestuous man who was excommunicated in the prior uh, epistle. Sufficient for such a one is this punishment which was inflicted by the majority, so that on the contrary, you should rather forgive and comfort him. Otherwise, such a one might be overwhelmed by excess sorrow. Wherefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love for him. Most um, people, most scholars who look at these two passages and compare 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians agree that this was a restoration of the man who was disciplined prior. Now, we can't know that for sure, but it is very likely. Well, and, and here's the thing. He's restored. He's brought back into the fold. Don't be so hard on him. Don't treat him like he's a second-rate citizen. Reaffirm your love to him. He's forgiven. He came back into the fold. And the fact that someone could be censured, either suspended from the Lord's Supper, or someone even could be excommunicated and put out of the church is not the end for them. But section 2 gives us hope and it says that church officers are to open it, that is the kingdom, unto penitent sinners by the ministry of the gospel and by absolution from censures as occasion shall require. In other words, the Whatever the sin is that put them out of the church, they've repented of it, they've turned from it, they've turned back unto Christ with new obedience. Therefore, they should be re-allowed to partake of the Lord's Supper. They should be given back all the privileges of the church. 
and to be welcomed in as not a second-rate citizen, but as a fellow brother and sister, a fellow co-heir with Christ. So again, uh, an important lesson in, in this message tonight is that you can't look at a passage and just interpret a doctrine based on that. You have to let Scripture interpret Scripture. And when someone says, you see here, the keys of the kingdom have been given to Peter. Well, one, look at what the rest of the Bible says. The keys of the kingdom have been given unto the church, the church leadership. When two or three are gathered together, not for a prayer meeting, but when two or three are gathered together for church discipline, Christ is in their midst. It's a multiplicity of elders present in exercising that discipline and uh, it is for the sake and the good of the church. It is one of the marks of a true church is to exercise church discipline. All right, let's pray together. We thank you, our beloved Lord, that you care for us, that even um, as children that we are not considered as illegitimate because you discipline and care for us. And we pray that you would help us to heed the hand of discipline even when it's just uh, someone encouraging us or exhorting us or correcting us. We pray that you would help us um, to know that you love us by the means of exercise of discipline. And we do pray that you would give wisdom to the session of this church, that we would use this privilege and use this calling and this obligation as something um, that would be done prayerfully in accordance with your word. Help us, we pray, as a church, to grow in maturity, that you would help us not to, to be taken um, to the left or to the right by in every wind of doctrine, but help us to, to stay uh, fixed upon your holy word as our final authority in all matters. We thank you for our blessed Lord Jesus, for that through him that you have accepted sinners and that you have given us the way of salvation through Christ our Lord. Uh, bless um, these your saints and help us to receive these words um, and to grow thereby. For we ask these things in the name of Jesus our Lord. Amen. For our closing hymn, let's turn to 406. I love thy kingdom, Lord, and we'll stand and sing, uh, I'm sorry, 405, 405.